I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Jane Palmer. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 10th, 2015. Coming up, we'll have author Joshua Horwitz talk about his eco-thriller War of the Whales, a true story, which uncovers the mystery of the mass strandings of whales around the world. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. This Wednesday, February 12th, marks a day many consider important in the evolution of science. It's Charles Darwin's birthday anniversary. And on last Wednesday, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut introduced Senate Resolution 66 to formally recognize February 12th as Darwin Day. Although similar bills have been introduced in the House of Representatives, this is the first Darwin Day resolution to appear in the Senate. Representative Jim Hines, also of Connecticut, introduced its companion bill to the House earlier this week. The day would celebrate the importance of science in the betterment of humanity. As the climate begins to heat up, so do the world's oceans. Only higher carbon dioxide levels also mean they get more acidic, too. Scientists know that this has had dire effects on coral reefs, which in certain areas have bleached or died en masse. But how will rising greenhouse gas emissions impact the less glamorous marine organisms, such as clams and mussels and sea urchins and barnacles and certain microscopic plankton? These calcifying organisms are critical to ecosystems worldwide. Collectively, they provide homes for fish, food for marine predators, natural defences for storms and erosion. But a new study has found that if emissions get high enough and the oceans pass a certain threshold of acidity, most of these species will suffer too. The researchers say that the analysis is an important step toward providing policymakers with a better understanding of the big picture of climate impacts on the ocean. The study was published last week in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Interested in applications of laser technology? Check out Café Scientifique Boulder. To tonight, Tuesday, February 10th, Joshua Hadler, a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, will talk about the nature of laser light, as well as common sources of laser hazards that can be prevalent in everyday experience. Laser applications have grown hugely since the first optical laser was developed about 50 years ago. Today, lasers are nearly ubiquitous in medicine, telecommunications, chemistry, metallurgy, manufacturing, entertainment, geoscience, and much more. The event will be held in Boulder at West Flanders Brewery on the Pearl Street Mall, just west of Broadway. Refreshments begin at 5.30 and the talk starts at 6 o'clock. For more info, go to cafesciboulder.wordpress.com. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. In the early hours of March 15th of the year 2000, a Cuvier beaked whale washed ashore a mere 100 feet from Ken Balcom's house on the island of Abaco in the Bahamas. It was, for the whale, a fortuitous coincidence. Balcom was a marine mammal researcher who was uniquely placed to rescue the creature. 
but that day 17 more whales of various species washed up on nearby islands and some of them weren't quite so fortunate. The event was the largest mass stranding in recent history, but what might have caused it was a total mystery. To Balcom, it was a mystery that cried out for a solution. So begins the book, War of the Whales, A True Story. It's a book that has been described by critics as a tense, page-turning eco-thriller, even though it's a work of non-fiction. Here to talk to us today about what happened after Kelm Balcom's discovery and the attempts to solve the mystery is author Joshua Horwitz. Welcome, Joshua. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So the book opens with this single beach whale being washed up ashore, a mere 100 metres from the house of Ken Balcom. Really, what is unusual about that particular bleaching? I mean, beaches of whales aren't unusual, are they? We do have marine mammals that wash up ashore. Well, uh, certain species of whales uh, strand commonly, such as pilot whales, which tend to follow the leader of the pod. And if the leader goes ashore, so does the pod. Uh, what was unusual about this, uh, immediately apparent to Ken Balcom, who had been studying these, uh, this particular community of beaked whales for, for 10 years, along with his, his wife and, and research partner, uh, Diane Claridge, was that beaked whales never strand alive. Of course, you know, occasionally a dead whale will wash ashore in a storm. But uh, these were live strandings, and as you mentioned, the largest uh, uh, multi-species mass stranding of whales, of beaked whales ever recorded. And so these whales are, are, are not, uh, it, was, it was totally unusual, and he, he got that immediately. Okay, so some of them died as well. They weren't able to revive some of them. Um, what did he do with the whales that died? Well, because it was so what's known as an atypical stranding, um, he immediately knew that this is something that he needed to investigate, if, if only because you know, this was his community, the, his research community of whales, and there were only about 50 of them in this community. And uh, he had been tracking them and tagging them and identifying them for a decade. So he, of course, had a, had a direct interest in figuring out what happened. And um, he also uh, was a, physiolo a whale physiologist, and he knew how that in order to create an evidence trail of this event, he needed to cut off the heads of, of whatever freshest specimens he could find, and it's always a race against the elements when whales strand in the tropics, and this was in the Bahamas. And uh, so he, he, he cut off several whale heads and managed to get them into a deep freeze and, uh, and then put in a call to the Office of Navy Research uh, to, to try to kickstart an investigation. And why the Office of Navy Research? I'm interested. Why would he think to put in a call to the Office of Navy Research? Well, what makes this such a remarkable story, and the reason I, you know, as a writer, I said this is an incredible story, is that he was probably the only person in the whole world who would have had the wherewithal to, you know, happen to have been. I mean, he just happened to be there, but uh, to, to know what to do in terms of how to preserve an evidence trail and also who to call to investigate. Because this is the Bahamas, not the United States. In the United States, you call NOAA, the, uh, and fishery, the National Fisheries Department is, is in charge of investigating. But in the Bahamas, it's international waters. And um, he, it turns out, had, 
had a past with the Navy. He he was a uh, uh, he had been a sonar operator for the Navy back in the 60s and 70s, decades earlier, and he had gone on to uh, to have a long career as a whale researcher. But he had uh, he knew the people at the Office of Naval Research, which has a big marine mammal division and has for decades, um, that is in charge of investigating uh, these kinds of incidents. Uh, they don't usually do it without uh, a lot of prodding, and when they do do it, they tend to do it in private, not in, in, in a transparent investigation. Right, but he was able to use those connections and really do the prodding. But at that stage, did he have any suspicions about what might cause the strandings? Well, he, again, because he had a, a background in acoustics and in Navy acoustics in particular, he knew that uh, and he knew the signs, the physical signs of these animals. Uh, they were bleeding from the ears and some from the eyes. They were clearly had uh, evidence of hemorrhaging. And if you'd seen a single whale, you know, perhaps had been hit by a boat or, you know, had had a concussive event. So, but he immediately identified this as what's known as acoustic trauma, and there are only a couple of credible sources for that. I mean, if they were dynamiting in those waters, which sometimes happens, they would be dynamiting a coral shelf, unfortunately, to build a you know resort or something that could cause this sort of damage, or even a big earthquake conceivably could. But he also knew that the Navy uh, had deployed a, a kind of sonar that could also cause this this sort of event. Okay, just to back up a little here, like, what do you mean when you say sonar, and why would the Navy be using sonar? Well, this is where the story gets really interesting, or it really hooked me, and said, so this is, you know, this is a book that cries out to be written. Um, you know, we, you know, and I, I imagine, you know, embrace whales as sentient beings, and, you know, are committed to at least actively or passively to their preservation. But, you know, back in the 1950s, when the Navy first got involved with whales and dolphins, uh, the only people who cared about saving the whales were whalers who were frantically trying to revive the whaling stocks that they had so drastically overfished for decades and centuries and that had crashed in the 40s. So uh, the, the Navy uh, heard rumors or from their own scientists who had been studying bats who echolocate in the air in the dark that there are other mammals that hunt and navigate in the dark might also use uh, what's known as biosonar. Um, and the reason, you know, which is using sound waves to, to hunt and navigate in the dark depths of the ocean. And the reason the Navy cared about this, of course, is that they're in the, in the business of hunting enemy submarines. And in the 1950s, these were very scary uh, Soviet submarines that, like ours, could launch nuclear missiles from thousands of miles away. And, and you know, they were scary adversaries. So they um, sent their best scientists down to Marine World in, in uh, Florida, which was the first marine park, and had them study the dolphins there. And dolphins are, are what are known as small cetaceans or small whales. They have the same uh, physiognomy. So in any case, they very quickly established that they were, in fact, navigating by sound. And as soon as the Navy figured this out, they, they started to study these animals, in fact, all sorts of whales and dolphins, and uh, with an eye to reverse engineering their very, very sophisticated uh, biosonar that these, these animals had developed and evolved over tens of millions of years of hunting in the, in the dark depths of the ocean. But how then does this biosonar affect the whales? How would it? Well, the biosonar doesn't. They use biosonar to, you know, to, to echolocate or bounce sound off of objects in the water to either navigate or, or hunt for their prey, their, their predators. And so that's how whales have become the top predator in the ocean. And so, uh, but 
the Navy, which uses a much more crude form of what's known as active sonar, which is, again, bouncing sound waves off of anything that might be in the water and reading the echo. In this case, they were looking for submarines, but it doesn't discriminate if you send out a very strong sound signal that will hit whatever is in the water. And uh, unfortunately, in that day in the Bahamas, the Navy was doing uh, war games, and they had never done them in those waters before, and they unfortunately had not done uh, advanced research to see what marine mammals might be living there. But in any case, uh, when whales and, and, and dolphins, and particularly toothed whales, are, are uh, struck by these intense uh, acoustic impulse, you know, it's a, it's a sound energy wave. Is what's, a sound is an energy wave, and underwater it, sound travels five times faster underwater than in the air. And, it's, and these are, you know, acoustic weapons. I mean, this is, this is what's known in the Navy as acoustic warfare, and they're not using it to, uh, you know, as for its concussive force, but they are using increasingly, have been using increasingly strong and powerful sound signals in the ocean. And there had been a history of strandings related to sonar leading up to this event, but no one had ever documented it because the whales in the sun and uh, the heat of, of the tropics, they rot very quickly. So what was remarkable in this instance is that Ken Balcom was able to preserve a, an evidence trail of, of the brain, of the heads and brains of, of several of these animals. It's a remarkable coincidence. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer and I'm talking with author Joshua Horwitz about his new book titled War of the Whales, A True Story. So... Ken Barcom started this investigation, but he met with a little bit of resistance. I think it's fair to say, and he became a whistleblower. Um, you describe him as a reluctant whistleblower, but surely, why was that such a difficult decision for him to make, really, as a whale? Well, scientist? I mean, this is, again, what's so interesting about this story to me is that he wasn't a dyed-in-the-world activist, environmentalist, or conservationist. He was a very serious whale scientist, a marine biologist, but he was a scientist, first and foremost, and he was also someone who had served as an officer in the U.S. Navy for seven years, all of it undercover, so no one in his family, including his wife, uh, knew about this uh, because he had taken a, you know, a vow of silence, which is what you do in the Navy if you're working in the submarine corps or many of the classified uh, areas of the Navy. So he took that oath very seriously, and he was loyal to the Navy. He wasn't anti-Navy, but when he realized that the Navy once he actually physically handed off these heads, there's a great scene in the book where he has to carry these frozen heads up to a, a laboratory at Harvard to have them uh, CT scanned before they dissect them, and he's racing against time to get them up there before they thaw out. But in any case, once he hands the heads over, they, they were happy to shut him out of the investigation and kind of take the investigation private, if you will, and he was determined to have it not be a, a, a secret investigation with secret findings. So he eventually uh, agreed to go with an environmental attorney named uh, Ken Belcom, I'm sorry, Joel Reynolds, to a, a press conference in Washington and essentially become a whistleblower and say, this is what I've witnessed. And, you know, I, I, I call on the Navy to have a transparent investigation. Right. And Joel Reynolds is the other main character in the book, though there is a lot of characterization of the various players. But um, can you tell me a little bit about Joel, Joel Reynolds? 
Well, they're a really interesting pair. I mean, they are the two protagonists, and they were an unlikely uh, pair. And they, they, one of them uh, was a, a scientist, essentially, and the other one was a, a, a committed environmental activist. He was an, an attorney. He, Joel Reynolds, uh, at the time, ran the L.A. office of the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. And he had actually been suing the Navy over its non-compliance with environmental laws, specifically Marine Mammal Protection Act and Endangered Species. Act uh, for about five years before uh, this incident, and what he lacked was an evidence trail. I mean, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence, and there was certainly a paper trail. They hadn't been observing the law, but there was a, a, only a circumstantial evidence of the direct connection between sonar and whale strandings. And so this really gave him the ammunition he needed to go to court. And the tricky part was, by the time he got to court, it was post-9-11. It was 2003. And, uh, I mean, it, was, it, it followed directly from this investigation, but the Navy dragged out this investigation for two years. And it, it wasn't until uh, the early 2003 that they released their report. And by that time, or it was a little earlier than that, but by the time he got to court, it was post-9-11, and it was a very, very tough time to go to court against the, the U.S. Navy. I mean, it was the peak of, of patriotism, and the courts are not immune to that. In fact, they have a sort of unwritten doctrine, doctrine of deferring to the military, uh, particularly in wartime. And um, so it was an uphill battle. So can you give us a hint where this war goes in the book without giving away the ending, of course? Well, I mean, this, what, what's remarkable is that these two men, I mean, Joel Reynolds had the backing of, of NRDC, which is a national environmental group, but initially he was working on his own. He didn't have a staff for this project, but he started to win cases, and as he won cases against the Navy, he, he had more resources and listed co-plaintiffs, other groups, and other individuals. Um, but this, this battle went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2008. And, in fact, these legal battles, I mean, there were multiple lawsuits, and one of them went to the Supreme Court in 2008, and there are, there are lawsuits still in the courts in California and Hawaii and RDC and Earth Justice are still in, in court against the Navy, um, which, by the way, has come a long way. I mean, the Navy has... has has taken great strides since the mid-90s when they did nothing in terms of filing for permits and, and having any transparency about what they were doing. Uh, but they, according, you know, as far as the environmentalists are concerned, they're still not in compliance, and therefore they're still being sued, um, you know, to be in full compliance. So is it, is it really a national defense issue? I mean, are we really, is, are we being a little idealistic to care about the fate of whales when... You know, humans are scrabbling for their own survival and trying to get their defenses up. I mean, is is it just as simple as that? It's the whales of us, you know. Well, I, you know, it, it really depends which side you're looking at. I mean, I called this book War of the Whales because it's really a culture war about two parts of two, a divide inside, a cultural divide in, our, in America anyway, uh, between the people who sort of grew up love, you know, meeting these animals in marine parks and, and, and later in the wild and, and getting involved in their, in their defense and the whole Save the Whales movement versus a military establishment that saw them as, as ass, military assets that could be exploited both in terms of training them to, as combatants as they still serve and in the, in, in they're still clearing mines and patrolling harbors in, in the Middle East today, uh, dolphins, Navy dolphins. But uh, so, so that's the conflict. And, and I don't think there's a right and wrong because clearly we are all committed to national defense. These are scary times. The, the Soviet threat, the submarine threat, has largely subsided. 
the Navy's position, which is, you know, not unreasonable, is that, well, yes, the Soviets are gone, but they could come back. The, the Chinese are building up their Navy. All you need is one rogue submarine from any any of dozens of countries that have military submarines. You know, a quiet submarine could sink a whole battleship if, if it were not detected. So there are real issues at stake here. The thing to keep in mind is all of the legal battles and all the controversies about trainings, not about the right or the need for the military, for the Navy to use sonar in battle or in battle field conditions. But all of these events, these mass strandings that have, 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 have drawn so much attention in lawsuits has been about war games. You know? So the question is, where is the Navy going to train to prepare for sonar exercises in the field, in the battlefield? And, you know, the, the position of the environmentalists, which is hard to argue with, is that you know, whales shouldn't have to die for practice, that there's, it's a big enough ocean, it should be a big enough ocean, that the Navy uh, should be able to find uh, environments where whales are not resident to, uh, to train. So is so there that's... a workable compromise here? I mean, can you say, like, well, we'll save 80% of the whales by only training in certain areas? Well, I think there's certainly room for compromise. I mean, again, you can argue around the edges. The Navy says we need to train in the same kind of environments where we're going to have to fight. So they often look for things that simulate different battle situations. But having said that, you know, there are what are called geographic and, uh, and, and seasonal exclusions. So that if you're going to train in an area where the whales are migrating through there at a certain time of year, don't train in that term of year. And if there's a resident population, as there was, I mean, these whales in the Bahamas had been there, that community had been there for, there's fossil evidence of their presence for millions of years. So if they had investigated it, they would have, and, and all the locals, I mean, Cam Belkin had been there 10 years studying. If they'd asked the local researchers if there were beach whales in the neighborhood, they would have told them. So, uh, you know, you can stay, it, it certainly is a big enough ocean. I think the Navy could use more simulators, simulation rather than live fire um, uh, trainings. There are, there are all sorts of ways to work around this. And I think my hope, you know, as someone who's followed this story through the courts and all the rest of it for years now, is that um, the, the, most kind of the best parties in both camps will sit down together and, and close the gap that still exists, which is a lot narrower than it was 10 years ago. The good news is, you know, we've come a long way, and I think it could be negotiated even outside of court at this point if, it, if both parties wanted to settle. Great. Quick final question. I mean, this is a great story, but do you hope that your book might have helped that? Is that was it just a great story, or do you hope that there's some sort of legacy to your book? Well, I certainly hope that it awakens people to the to how acoustically sensitive whales are, not just to Navy sonar, but to oil and gas drilling, which is a big issue now on the east coast of the United States, to international shipping. And also, most importantly, that people will look at these two men who really you know, took it upon themselves to stand up to the most powerful Navy in the world, really as almost two individuals, and they were able to turn around this very powerful force and get them to start, you know, working within the law. And it hasn't hurt national security. And I think it's been good for everybody. So I'm hoping that people will be inspired in whatever area they're, they want to get engaged, uh, that, that, that individuals can make a difference if they commit to persevere. As and to write have. books about them. Thank you so much, Joshua. That, thank you, Jane. Thank you. That was author Joshua Horitz talking about his new book titled War of the Wells, A True Story. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bartell. The executive producer is Kendra Kruger. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Renewing Vibrations. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Beth Bartell.